Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. Do you ever think about all the folks in the world who accomplished much, but whose names are never known? You know, I was thinking about just unsung heroes, people who, who they didn't amount to much from, a, from this, just, a, just a worldly standpoint, people that, uh, that we don't necessarily think about on a daily basis. Uh, but there's people that just fill the history books whose contributions to our society and culture are absolutely remarkable. For instance, Maurice Hilleman. And you may have heard of Maurice Hilleman. Probably not. I, I would have been surprised if anybody had said that they had heard of, of old Maurice here. Uh, but what did Maurice do? Well, you'll be happy to know Maurice developed the mumps vaccine. So if you've never had mumps, you can thank Maurice. How did that happen? In 1963, his daughter contracted the illness. He took a swab from the back of her throat, drove to his laboratory in the middle of the night, and figured out a way to turn that vaccine into what we use today. Didn't stop there. In total, Maurice has single-handedly developed more than 40 different vaccines, including eight that are commonly given to children in order to prevent measles, mumps, hepatitis A and B, chicken pox, meningitis, pneumonia. His work has probably saved millions of lives, and it's prevented all kinds of complications as a result of those diseases. The MMR vaccine, anybody ever had that? Yeah. Um, that has been given to over a billion children around the world, and because of that vaccine, his daughter got, uh, or, or his daughter got the mumps, and he got the vaccine. Louis Latimer. Anybody ever heard of Louis Latimer? Okay. He was the son of a runaway slave, but he was the draftsman who helped Alexander Graham Bell file his patent for the telephone. That's impressive. I can't say that I've done that. But that's not all. Latimer patented a carbon filament for the incandescent light bulb in 1881. Though Thomas Edison is generally the guy who is uh, considered credited to be the inventor of the light bulb, Edison, up until that time, had only been able to make the bulbs light up for just a few, um, just a few moments. When that carbon filament was invented, Latimer actually allowed the bulbs to burn for hours before they would burn out. Not only that, Latimer was a pioneer of the electric lighting industry, one of the charter members of the Edison pioneers who worked closely with Edison in the further development of the electric lights. Of the 100 original pioneers, Lewis Latimer was the only black man. How about James Harrison? I live next to him. No, no, you probably don't. Harrison has saved, he looks good there, he looks like a nice guy. He saved the lives of over 2 million people. You say, well, if you save 2 million people, then you ought to be famous for something. Well, he is. He's known as the man with the golden arm. That sounds like a James Bond movie. However, James Blood produces a rare antibody which cures the otherwise fatal rhesus disease in unborn children. James has donated his blood 1,173 times a Guinness World Record. It's estimated that his blood donations have saved the lives of almost 2.4 million babies. 
I gave platelets once. James, get this, he was forced to retire as a blood donor when he reached the age of 77, which is the maximum donor age in Australia where he lives. However, his blood has been used in the development of a medicine known as anti-D, which is hoped will banish the rhesus disease in children forever. Now, I could go on for a very long time talking about people who, who we don't know people whose names aren't in lights, people who aren't very famous, but who have who've done remarkable things in helping to craft and change and, and, and create the world in which we live. These are people, they just simply went to work. Just people who went to work, did their jobs, and in the process of doing so, paved their way for the remarkable. You know, our Bibles are full of individuals like that. Not everybody in the story is a King David or an Apostle Paul. Not everyone in the story has their names in lights as some do. But this morning as we conclude our Who's Your One series, I want to consider one of these unremarkable heroes. In the Bible, he's only mentioned a handful of times. If it were a play, he's the guy you'd want to be because the lines are short and easy to memorize. However, his impact actually is quite immeasurable. Homer Lindsay, famous Southern Baptist preacher, referred to Andrew simply as the inviter. This morning, I'd like us to talk about Andrew, the man who manages constantly to disappear into the shadows of his brother Peter. If you've got your Bibles today, let me ask you to open to the first chapter of John's Gospel. This morning we will look at our introduction to Andrew, where we first meet him in John chapter 1. And if you would, would you please stand with me as we read God's word together, beginning in John chapter 1, verse 35. The next day again, John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and, looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Father, I thank you for Andrew. I thank you for his witness. I thank you for his invitation to his brother Peter. Lord, we think about the impact that Peter had that may never have happened had it not been for his brother. Lord, may we be like Andrew and be the inviters today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. James and John, Andrew and Peter, if there was an inner circle, that would be it in Jesus' disciples. Frequently, Andrew is left out, so he may be on the outer edge of that circle. But nonetheless, he's an important, integral part of this band of men who followed Jesus. However, in spite of his, his lack of notoriety, Andrew was used by God 
to touch one who touched thousands. Had Andrew never been born, the New Testament would have certainly changed significantly. Peter may never have been saved. Someone else may have preached that famous Pentecost sermon that we find early there in the book of Acts. Two of the New Testament books would have to be eliminated, first and second Peter. Only heaven knows what else would have to be left out of the Bible in church history. Andrew was the first of all the disciples there to be called. And his eagerness to follow Christ, combined with his zeal for introducing others to Christ, fairly characterizes Andrew's attitudes and his behavior. You think about it. Peter, James, John, Andrew. The, the least conspicuous. Scripture doesn't tell us much about him. If you search his name, he only appears in the New Testament nine times. Most of those references only mention him in passing. Andrew lived his life in the shadows of his better-known brother, Peter. He's even mentioned here as Simon Peter's brother. However, we should not forget that Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus. Andrew shows us that he had the right heart for effective ministry in the background. Andrew's name means manly. He was a strong fisherman, proved to be bold, decisive, deliberate. He was driven by a passion for the truth, willing to subject himself to hardship for the sake of the cause. Andrew's personal encounter with Jesus took place shortly after Jesus' baptism. Andrew was listening to John the Baptist, was following John the Baptist when Jesus walked by, and he heard John declare that this is the Lamb of God. Well, that is enough to capture anybody's attention. Andrew heard. And that, that news was too good to keep to himself. So he went and he got the one person, the one person in the world that he loved the most, whom he most wanted to know Jesus, and he brought him to Christ, his brother, Peter. Now, some people are quick to point out that this story looks differently than the story looks in Matthew chapter 4. And skeptics will say, oh, there's a contradiction. John 1 and Matthew 4 don't go along together. There's two different stories, so it must be a contradiction. Except when we read our Bibles, we read our Bibles to believe our Bibles, not to look for reasons to doubt our Bibles. If you remember in Matthew chapter 4, Peter and Andrew were on the boat. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This was... This, and they did. They dropped everything and went and followed Jesus. And you say, how in the world can those two stories work together? Well, the fact of the matter is, is what happens in John 1 happens before what happens in Matthew chapter 4. They're not contradictory texts. They're complementary texts. John 1 actually helps us to understand something important. Jesus didn't use that Jedi mind trick after all on those fishermen. He, it wasn't the first time that they had seen Jesus. They had already interacted with Jesus. Jesus was already working in their hearts and in their minds. And so when Jesus appeared and said, I want to make you fishers of men, they'd been mulling over this for a while. I guess that's what happens to most people today. Most people today, when you knock on their door and say, I'd like to introduce you to Jesus, even if they're lost, and even if they're, they're, they're potentially ready to get saved, the likelihood is, is they're probably not going to just immediately fall for what it is that you're offering them. They're going to need to think over it and, and mull over it. That happens all the time, and it's no different here. 
They had met Jesus in John chapter 1. Jesus encountered them again a little bit later, and he said, come and follow me. The Holy Spirit was already very much at work in their lives, and so when it came time to respond to Jesus, they responded to Jesus. That's why when we ask, who's your one, it's important that you ask God, who, who is my one? Where is one that you're working in? Where is somebody that you're, 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 you're dealing with? Where is somebody who's, who's got some questions? Where is somebody that, that you, are, you are talking to right now? Lord, bring me to that person. Remember what we said a couple of weeks ago, before you ever talk to somebody about Jesus, you better be talking to Jesus about somebody. With all that being said this morning, I want us to consider Andrew, the inviter and I want us to consider how Andrew paints a picture for us of what this kind of success in the kingdom of God looks like. The first thing we have to recognize is that Andrew saw the value of individual people. Andrew appreciated the value of a single soul. Again, what's he known for? He's known for bringing individuals, not large crowds, to Jesus. He wasn't one who went out and, and, and brought a crowd of people together and stood up and introduced them and said, I'm glad you all are here today. Let me introduce you to Jesus. That wasn't his ministry. Andrew's ministry is bringing individuals to the Lord. He brought Peter to Jesus. Not Peter and all of his friends. He brought Peter to Jesus, just one. He brought a little boy with his lunch to Jesus. Just one. In John chapter 12, we do see him interacting with a bit of a larger group. We see in John chapter 12, verse 20, Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. It's almost like Philip wasn't quite sure what to do with all these foreign folks who wanted to talk to him. I'm not sure. Are we supposed to bring them to Jesus? So we went and got Andrew. Andrew would know what to do. And Andrew did what Andrew knows how to do. Let's bring him to Jesus. Listen, church, this should be our reflex when we meet somebody. This should be our reflex. This should be like the doctor tapping on your knee with that little rubber hammer and your foot moves. Your reflex, our reflex as Christians, as the church, is when we meet somebody, we ought to say, well, let's bring him to Jesus. Because we don't know. When you meet somebody new, you meet somebody in the store, you meet a new neighbor, you don't know what their condition is. You don't know what their heart is. So let's bring them to Jesus. The worst thing that could happen is they might already be there. And that's great. You've got a brother or sister that you've just met. You can fellowship together. If you meet somebody and you bring them to Jesus and they say, you know what, I don't really want to meet this Jesus. Well, that's okay. That's on them then. You did your part. Your knee-jerk reaction to, to meeting new people is, let me figure out how to bring them to Jesus. This is what Andrew does. Well, I don't know about these Greeks. Let's bring them to Jesus. Let him sort them out. Bless God, that should be the church's response to evangelism. We're going to preach to everybody that will listen, and we'll let God sort it, sort it out. Listen, we're not responsible for their response. We're not responsible when a lost person, what that person does with the gospel. It's not our job to coerce them or to convict them or to drag them kicking and screaming into salvation. That is the work of God, the Holy Spirit, in their heart. But God did say we're responsible for sharing. It is our job. It is our responsibility to bring them to Jesus. How do we ask, we ask the question, how do I bring this person to Jesus? The fact of the matter is this, most people do not come to Christ 
as an immediate response to a sermon they hear in a crowded setting. You're all like, well, great, let's go home then. Get to lunch early. If they do, the likelihood is very high that they only came to that crowded setting. Why? Because somebody they know brought them. Somebody they know brought them. People come to Christ because of the influence of an individual. I was saved on January 19, 1992 at Bible Way Baptist Church over on Lakeview Drive. But my heart was prepared for that day, not because I got there and heard a great sermon. I can't even tell you what the sermon was that day. But what I can tell you is that my grandmother had been pouring into me and investing in me. I shared with the Sunday school class this morning my, my testimony. She gave me a Bible, told me what to read in my Bible. And that morning when I woke up, that January, God was working in my heart. I was so under conviction that, that was, I knew that I needed to do something. I couldn't wait to get to church that day. I couldn't wait for the preacher to sit down and shut up so that I could get to the altar and accept the Lord Jesus as my Savior. But it wasn't because he preached an incredible sermon. It's because somebody had been pouring into me and investing in me along the way. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. I cannot emphasize this enough today. People are not saved because there's a pretty good-sized church building here. People are not saved because there's empty seats in this room this morning. People are not saved because we open the doors every Sunday morning at 1045 for a worship service. People are saved because the people of God are leveraging their relationships for the glory of God. People are saved because we as God's people see the value of individuals and we are concerned about their spiritual condition. And listen, you will never know. You will never know what kind of impact you're going to have on the kingdom of God when you concern yourself with one individual. Andrew brought one. His name was Peter. Peter brought thousands. And listen. The fruit of Peter's ministry, ultimately Andrew gets to share in that because of his faithful individual witness. I wonder if anybody's ever heard of Edward Kimball. You probably haven't unless you're well-read in autobiographies. Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. He was a Sunday school teacher who led D.L. Moody to Christ. Edward went to a Boston shoe store where that 18-year-old Moody was working, cornered him in the stockroom, and introduced him to Christ. But he was anything but bold. He was a timid, soft-spoken man. He went to that shoe store frightened, trembling, and unaware of whether he had the courage to confront this young man with the gospel. Moody, on the other hand, was crude, obviously illiterate, and Kimball trembled in his boots as he recalled the incident. Moody had started to attend his Sunday school class, but he was totally untaught and ignorant about the Bible. And Kimball said, I decided to speak to Moody about Christ and about his soul 
I started downtown to Holton Shoe Stores. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go and just go just then during business hours. And I thought maybe my mission might embarrass the boy. That when I went away, the other clerks might ask who I was. And when they learned, they might taunt Moody and ask if I was trying to make a good boy out of him. While I was pondering over it, I passed the store without noticing it. And then when I found I'd gone by the door, I determined to make a dash for it and have it over at once. That sounds like us. The Lord's working on our hearts. We know there's a, there's a name, there's somebody that, that we, we just have this conviction about. But man, every obstacle is a sign from God that today's not the day. I just can't go. Somebody will make fun of him. Somebody will make fun of me. There's all kinds of obstacles in the way. Kimball found Moody in the stockroom, spoke to him with what he calls limping words. Later he said, I never could remember what I said. Something about Christ and his love. That was all. He admitted that it was a weak gospel appeal. But Moody, right then and there in that shoe store, gave his heart to Jesus. You may not have heard of Edward Kimball, but I know you've heard of D.L. Moody. Tens of thousands of men and women testified that they came to faith in Jesus through the ministry of D.L. Moody. Moody led C.T. Studd, the great pioneer missionary. William Chapman, who himself became a well-known evangelist to Christ. Moody founded the Moody Bible Institute that has trained thousands for ministry. And it all began because of a Sunday school teacher who was not too afraid to go in the shoe store and share the gospel in the stockroom. Andrew saw the value in an individual and changed the world as a result. But secondly, we also know that Andrew saw the value of insignificant gifts. Over another one of Andrew's feature moments occurs over in John chapter 6. It's a story that's well known, Jesus feeding the 5,000. I heard a story of a young preacher who was preaching this sermon. He got really fired up and he said, I want to tell you something. Jesus took 5,000 loaves of bread and 2,000 fishes and he fed five people. An old guy in the service interrupted and said, Great day, I could do that. So the young preacher messed it up so bad, couldn't even finish his sermon. Threw up his hands, dismissed the church, and thought, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back next week. I'm going to preach it right. I'll show that man. So he went back next week. He said, Jesus took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people. Didn't hear a word. He said, how about that? And the old man said, well, great day. I could do that. The preacher said, how? He said, with all the leftovers you had from last week. <laughs> you see this interplay between Philip and Andrew. Jesus asks Philip, how are we going to feed these people? And Philip doesn't know what to do. Yeah, we ain't got enough money, Jesus. This is, a, this is a problem of epic proportions. Just send them home hungry. We don't have to feed them. We have that conversation here. We don't have to do a meal. We don't have to feed them. That costs too much. We can't do that. But what's Andrew do? 
he brings this little boy and this little boy's lunch to Jesus. Because, hey, what's Andrew's reflex reaction? I'll just bring it to Jesus. Let me bring him to Jesus. That's his reflex reaction. Let me just bring him to Jesus. Now, we're not told anything about how Andrew and this little boy connected. I've always imagined that the little boy saw the need and wanted to contribute what he could. But again, that's just sheer speculation on my part. Andrew could have gone over and said, here, kid, give me your lunch. I don't know. The point is, is that nobody Andrew's better than Andrew. What's he called? He's the inviter. He's the bringer. Let me bring this to Jesus and see what Jesus can do to it. He says, I know it's not much, but what can we do with it? I may not have much, but let me bring it to Jesus. Listen, when Jesus is given something, there's no such thing as an insignificant gift. When you put it in the hands of the Lord, it doesn't matter whether this little boy's lunch or it's Andrew's behind-the-scenes ministry. We need to recognize this today. When you put a gift in the hands of Jesus, Jesus is going to do great and awesome things with that gift. Some of you may be stressing over your one. You're thinking, preacher, I've never led anybody to Christ. Preacher, I've never... I've never shared my testimony. The the most public your testimony may have ever been is, is in this water up here when you said Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's as far as you've ever taken it. You say, preacher, I don't know if I can do this. You, you say, I preach, I've never invited a lost person to come to church. What am I going to do if they show up? Statistics tell us that 98% of us have never invited a lost person to come to church. You may not be the most gifted evangelist in the world. You may very well be the world's most introverted introvert. But that simple conversation with your neighbor, having lunch with that coworker, having that family from your ball team over for dinner, inviting that waitress at the restaurant to come to church. Those may not be fanciful gifts, but those simple offerings of sacrifice are of inestimable worth in the hands of Jesus. You say, I don't know if I can do this. And I say, that's exactly how you know you need to take it to the Lord because that weakness that you feel like you're experiencing right now, that weakness that you're worried about, that that fear that you have, that's exactly where Jesus says, in your weakness, my strength is made perfect. You turn that weakness over to the Lord. You never know what God can do with it. Thirdly, he saw value of inconspicuous service. Last point, Andrew is the perfect picture of someone who goes about faithfully serving without much fanfare. He goes about faithfully serving without a whole lot of, uh, of fanfare. Nobody's, nobody's putting his name on banners. Nobody's doing anything to celebrate him. He's, he's quiet. He doesn't, he doesn't say much, but we know he's working in the background. We know that there are conspicuous ministries in the service of God. We know there are men who are called by God to preach to the multitudes, but Andrew reminds us that an overwhelming majority of the work that happens in the kingdom happens in those little Sunday school classes right up here. 
where somebody faithfully shows up week in and week out and they give a lesson to a group of seven-year-olds or eight-year-olds or nine-year-olds week in and week out, faithfully year after year after year. That's where a majority of the work of the kingdom of God happens on a regular and consistent basis. So no, you may not be called to preach to the multitudes or take the gospel to an unreached people group, but I can tell you that the person who's working in that little inconspicuous Sunday school classroom in the back back there is just as important in God's economy than the man who stands before the thousands to preach. And Andrew is the reminder of that. The work of the kingdom of God happens around dinner tables and in the coffee shop. The work of the kingdom happens not in this forum, but in the tens of millions of personal interactions that happen each and every single day. Interactions that you may never get credit for. And when it's happening, you may say, this sure doesn't feel like much. You say, man, that Sunday school lesson was a bomb. Man, we met for coffee and I didn't get to invite him to church this time. But we're meeting again next week. When you put, <laughs> when you put not much in the hands of an almighty God, it might just turn out that the guy you're having coffee with might turn out to be the guy who teaches the Sunday school class that's got the next Billy Graham in it. Listen, if Jesus were to show up today and say, I need you to go talk to this person right here. They're ready. I've been working on them. I just need you to go share your testimony with them. And once they get saved, I'm going to call them to preach. And they're going to fill stadiums again. And tens of thousands of people are going to get saved as a result of their proclamation. If, if Jesus came and offered you that, you would look at him and say, well, sure. Where, am I, where do I go? Where do I, where's he at? Let me go talk to him. Church, we don't need Jesus to come and tell us that. Because we know that every one of those interactions that we have is building God's kingdom soul by soul by soul by soul. And there's just no telling what God might do with not much when you put it into his hands. If you knew today that your one was going to be the next Billy Graham you wouldn't sit around and deliberate on what to do. You would make a beeline to his door. You'd invite him to Jesus. But we can't know that. He might be. Ladies, that woman you're having lunch with next week, she may not become the next, uh, I was going to say Beth Moore, but that's controversial. But she might become the next godly mother who raises a godly son who takes his family to an unreached people group. Who's your one? Secondly, we know there are a few Christians who are sharing the gospel today. And so while we've asked, who's your one, it may be more appropriate for it to ask, whose one are you? 
There is somebody who is counting on you to talk to them. We've heard the cliche, you're the only Bible that somebody's ever read. That's a cliche, but there's truth in that cliche. There's somebody who is counting on you to talk to them. Look around at your workplace. Look around at your neighborhood and look for that person. Whose one are you? Go to bed tonight with that responsibility on your shoulders. Lord, I know that I am responsible for somebody. Whose one am I? This year, we're going to ask this question a lot. And our prayer is that God will take dozens of these simple conversations and will use them to see to it that folks are saved. As you leave this morning, we have a 30-day prayer guide for you to help you begin praying through the month of February and a little into March for your one. Specific prayers to pray specifically for your one. Have a bookmark. You write their name on it. So you put in your Bible when you're going through your daily quiet times. You're reminded of their name. We want to equip you to pray for your ones for these next 30 days because we're believing God is going to lead ones to faith here. Well, how did it end for Andrew? A lot of historians believe that Andrew carried the gospel all the way to Russia. Some say that he went as far as Scotland. But he was one day witnessing to a Roman leader's wife, and she came to faith in Christ she was radically saved. Her husband found out, and he was infuriated. He demanded that she renounce Jesus, to which she would not. And so he said, well, if you won't denounce it, he won't tell anyone else. And so he ordered Andrew to be crucified. They crucified him on a cross that was in the shape of an X, which is why today when you see an X-shaped cross, it's known as St. Andrew's cross. Tradition has it that he didn't want to nail him to the cross because this Roman leader wanted him to suffer as long as possible, and so he was tied to the cross and was left there for two days before he died. Let me just say this. If you've got a brother with a soul on fire and you tie him to a cross and don't take his voice away, he spent the next two days pleading with everybody who came by to mock him, to taunt him. He pleaded with each and every single one of them to turn from their sins and give their life to Jesus. Isn't it something what God can do with one insignificant life? who understands the inestimable value of one single soul. Would you pray with me, please? God, may we be like Andrew. Inviters. Lord, we, we know not everybody is a gifted evangelist. Not everybody is going to be able to stand in pulpits and preach to thousands. Not everybody's going to fill stadiums and concert halls. But each and every single one of us who claims Jesus as Lord 
can look at Andrew and see in his life encouragement for ours. So God, may we ask the question, who's your one? Who's your one? Who's the one person that you're laying on our hearts right now in this moment that we simply need to talk to, that we need to have coffee with, we need to have lunch with, that we need to have their family over? Who's our one? And, and perhaps in a more somber tone, Lord, may we ask ourselves the question, who's one are we? Who's one are we? Who, who is it in our life that, that we're the only gospel witness that they have? We're the only person who cares enough about them to stop them and intervene in their eternal trajectory. Who's one are we? God, maybe there's some here today in this place that they know that if they were asked today what their spiritual condition is, Lord, they don't have a clue. They can't answer it. Maybe somebody here today brought a friend to church today and said, I just need you to meet Jesus. And then you decide what you're going to do with him. And so if you're that person who's here today, in this moment, I would just speak directly to you and tell you that there's no greater decision that you'll ever make than to give your life to Jesus. There's no greater offer that's ever been extended to you than the offer of salvation that comes through Jesus. He wants to take your sin away. He wants to give you eternal life. There's no greater offer. So in a moment when we stand and we begin to sing, I would invite you to just come and take my hand, take Spencer's hand and say, Pastor, I want, to, I want to take that offer that you're talking about. I want to know what it is that these people have. I want to know who it is that these people worship. I want to meet Jesus. We'd be happy to introduce him to you today. God, in these next moments, would you deal with our hearts? Would you give us a burden for our ones? Would you help us to understand what you can do with a great offer, a sacrifice? And Lord, would you let us do it even if we don't get credit for your glory and for your name? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to stand together and have a time of invitation. If you're here and you like to pray for your one, you're welcome to do it here. You can do it at your seat. Maybe you're here and you are someone who needs to give their life to Christ. Right now, when we begin singing, you come down front and you let us know that, and we can lead you in the right way. Let's sing together and you respond as the Lord leads. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.